In March 2003, there was no imminent threat from Saddam Hussein. I've gone back to that time when I learned that my brother had been killed. The decision had to be taken, and it was mine to take as Prime Minister. I took it. I accept full responsibility for it. I stand by it. That was yesterday, the day Sir John Chilcott delivered the findings of his inquiry into the Iraq war. So, what now? In the next half hour, you can hear how our panel of experts think this long and detailed report will be used by governments and the military in future when they decide if and when to go to war. Well, first, though, a reminder of how it all came about. Here's our Westminster correspondent, James Hurst. The 30th of April, 2009... As the last British forces handed over combat operations in southern Iraq to the Americans, they remembered their 179 colleagues killed on Operation Telic. In the cause of freedom and creating a better world. At home, a chorus of voices was demanding answers about the six years of fighting and why it had happened. Among them, Labour MP Paul Flynn. Did our loved ones die in vain? Was Parliament told the truth? Within weeks, then, Prime Minister Gordon Brown announced there would be an Iraq inquiry. So that by learning lessons, we will strengthen the health of our democracy, our diplomacy and our military. It's remit to cover all political and military events and decisions in the two years leading up to the war until British troops had come home. The panel, led by Sir John Chilcott, began taking evidence at the end of 2009. No-one's on trial here. We cannot determine guilt or innocence. But I make a commitment here that once we get to our final report, we will not shy away from making criticisms. Its questions were wide-ranging, from faulty intelligence to post-war planning, or lack of, whether British troops were properly equipped... And just what did Tony Blair promise to George Bush and when? I was going to continue um, giving absolute and firm commitment um, until the point at which definitively I couldn't. That was the former Prime Minister's second appearance in front of the inquiry five years ago. It's taken that long for the inquiry panel to negotiate over classified documents and conversations and turn its evidence into more than two and a half million words. Chilcott's lessons will take more than a day to learn. It will take weeks, months, perhaps years to pour through all the detail. It will be examined by all in conflict for decades to come. Well, it's more than 24 hours since the Iraq Inquiry report was published. Still not quite enough time to fully digest all 2.6 million words, but our guests today have had a pretty good go. I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, the former Director-General of the Royal United Services Institute, Major General Christopher Elliott, author of High Command, British Military Leadership in the Iraq and Afghanistan Wars, and, as usual, by our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to all of you. And just to start us off, Professor Michael Clark, in November 2002, I understand you were invited to Downing Street to brief the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Is it true? What did you say to him? Yes, that's true. We, there were six of us, and we were talking about what happens after a war, if a war takes place. And we were there, Tony Blair was there, and Jack Straw sat next to him with some maps that he showed. And every time we mentioned a place, Jack Straw would point it out on the map and make sure that Tony Blair understood it. Um, and we were talking about the possible aftermath and the effect on the Middle East in general. 
Um, Tony Blair, he wasn't very well. Uh, he kept coughing, little sort of nervous cough, uh, as if he was getting over flu, over flu. He looked very tired. He looked weighed down by the door. And when we left, he stood up and he shook all of our hands as we filed out of the room. And I was the last one to leave. And as I shook his hand, I sort of patted him on the shoulder as well. And I said, good luck. And he said, yeah, yeah. And he sort of gave me a little rueful smile. I was convinced he, he had the weight of the whole thing on him then. Mm. Did you have reservations at that point? Yes, we, we, we said... If this comes to war, at the time we didn't, we didn't know that it would. We said if this comes to war, that war will be a game changer in Iraq and the region. And he, he didn't say very much in the meeting. He nodded and he took all these things in. He talked about Saddam, about how evil he was and how the world would be a better place without Saddam. But most of it was, was him listening and Jack Straw pointing things out on the map as we spoke about the different aspects of, of what a war might do to the region. Could you have any kind of inkling at that point exactly what would transpire afterwards and how, how controversial this whole affair would become? No, I think we thought it was... At that stage, we thought it was 50-50 that there will be a war after Christmas, um, but that we were in the teeth of a, a really difficult diplomatic issue and, and that he, Tony Blair, was at the centre of it all and he felt that. You could see that he felt it. Major General Christopher Elliott, where were you when all this was going on? What were you doing? Well, I'd left the army uh, about 18 months pre previously, or a year previously, so I was completely out of the loop and I was uh, Joe Citizen looking at it from the outside. Um, I thought at the time that it appeared to be the right decision um, and I'm not even sure now that it wasn't the right decision on the evidence as presented, uh, because, of course, we just had the outrage of 9-11, and this seemed to be a threat against us all. I have to say, though, the rest of my family violently disagreed with me, and they all went on the million-person um, march, taking my dog with them. And you haven't changed... Your, your, your opinion hasn't wavered at all? Oh, no, my opinion has changed now. I mean, I, I, you asked me what I was doing then, and I gave you an honest answer of what it was like then. Mm. Um, I think it's been a catastrophe now. Christopher Lee, um, you've sat through a lot of the evidence at the Chilcot Inquiry. Was there a point at which you sensed that this was turning, there was a turning point? It, 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 was, there was, it came a point when we thought the evidence is going to be much greater in much more depth and I don't mean more intelligent, but better evidence than I imagined it was going to be. And I could see right from that point that it was going to go against anybody who said, well, on balance, it was a good idea. And that point came with the evidence of a man called William Patey, now Sir William Patey, who at the time was the uh, head of the Middle East desk at, in, 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 the, in the Foreign Office. And he brought in context how little was known how little expertise there was, and how you could have rumour, you could have, uh, for example, uh, information passed on from, from cowboys, from people who just wanted to tell you what they thought you wanted to hear. And I started thinking myself, not so much weapons of mass destruction, but weapons of mass disappearance, mm. because the whole thing was going to get murky, and this... this this, this thing was going to clear everything up, and it was quite clear from William Patey's evidence that a lot of people were going to say things that hadn't up until that point been said. Professor Michael Clark, why did we need this Chilcot inquiry? We'd already had the Hutton inquiry into the death of Dr David Kelly and the Butler inquiry into the intelligence failings. What did this bring? Why was it needed? And in a way, we have more than that, because in addition, the, the Foreign Affairs Committee in Parliament and the Defence Committee and the International uh, in Intelligence and Security Committee, they all did various things on... Uh, 
on the circumstances. And every one, five different reports, including um, Hutton and Butler, gave the government a clean bill of health. Um, but the public just didn't believe it because the war was so controversial. So the sense was, well, we can't have a report um, while we are still involved in Iraq because that would undermine the morale of the forces, which it would have done. And B, of course, it was only going to be done sometime after Tony Blair. So Gordon Brown in 2009, he'd been in office for a year, he said, OK, we're now withdrawing, now partly to, to um, satisfy this public clamour for even more information, he said, OK, we'll set up this inquiry. Mm-hmm. So what exactly did the inquiry look at? Here's Sir John Chilcott making his opening remarks. In 2003, for the first time since the Second World War, the United Kingdom took part in an invasion and full-scale occupation of a sovereign state. That was a decision of the utmost gravity. Saddam Hussein was undoubtedly a brutal dictator who had attacked Iraq's neighbours, repressed and killed many of his own people, and was in violation of obligations imposed by the UN Security Council. But the questions for the inquiry were whether it was right and necessary to invade Iraq in March 2003, and whether the UK could and should have been better prepared for what followed. Professor uh, Michael Clark, the legality question was put to one side for for this inquiry. Who decided what should be looked at and what shouldn't? Well, this came out of uh, the Cabinet Office in Downing Street, and I think they they felt that they they couldn't uh, give the legality question to Chilcott because that would make it a different sort of inquiry. So Mm -hmm. Chilcott, in a sense, was given the... Um, the historical job, to say we need a proper history, which is why the panel was really made up mainly of historians, actually, although they did have legal advisers working for them um, in the background. And could he ask anything he liked and invite anybody he wanted? Indeed. Yes, uh, within Britain's jurisdiction. And, of course, they did invite um, commentary from American officials and they didn't get a very good answer in many cases. Mm. Christopher Lee, do you think anyone was missing from the inquiry? Um, I don't think anybody that they could get at was missing. Um, I went to uh, talk to somebody in the State Department and I said, how much do you think will be asked of you? And how much, for example, in terms of documentation, exchange of emails, etc., would come? And he said, at this stage, there is no way that we're going to release anything. And it's nothing to do with George Bush. He said, if you go back and look at the personalities that were there... Uh, they will disregard the importance of this inquiry. So I think there are a lot of people that could have been helpful, but I don't think it would much change the outcome. Christopher Elliott, do you think anything was missing? Well, um, I'm going to answer that in a rather roundabout way, but I will come to the answer, because the the style that that Chilcott, Sir John Chilcott, I think, is is very important to the answer of that. I think that he's gone about it in a fair, measured, very courteous way, and he's given very detailed analysis, a wrong uh, record of what happened. And the result, then, is pretty damning. Uh, if you look at the chapter on the procurement of vehicles and other things, um, he goes into um, excruciating detail as to how the um, Ministry of Defence comes to take its procurement decisions. And you can see that, actually, at this critical moment, there wasn't really anybody, apart from the ultimate authority of the Chiefs of Staff, who is actually guiding this thing. It seemed to be in three different things. And so you can draw a conclusion from the evidence that he puts in front of you uh, as to that. If you look at the um, chapter, the year on the decision to come out of Basra, 
um, which and they did the deal with the Jam, the Jesh El Marder. Um, up until now, the uh, in-theatre commander has carried the responsibility for that. This uh, is the militias being told to correct. call off. Yeah. Well, no, the deal we, we deal we did with them, that if they didn't shoot at us, we would evacuate and leave the civilians to themselves. And uh, Major General Jonathan Shaw, up until this point, has been the, the lightning rod for that decision. But then you look into the evidence that uh, Chilcot has produced, and you see it was a much more complex situation than that. And many, many people were giving advice, uh, both uh, inside the military and inside uh, London, as to whether that should be right or wrong. And so you get out of that um, very many more things that uh, people are going to be able to find out in subsequent years once they go through the thing. But to answer your question, um, I think that uh, I was surprised to find that he didn't address the lack of cultural understanding by the, the armed services, the lack of uh, in-theatre intelligence about what was going on, and the gross... Were you surprised by that, the lack of intelligence about, about what was going on in the ground and the culture? As an ex-army man yourself? I was surprised he hasn't mentioned it. That's the mm. question you asked me. And I think that everybody I've spoken to uh, has bemoaned the fact of the poor intelligence, cultural understanding and lack of language ability. Mm. And, of course, in our books, which we write um, about how to do these things, those are three basic tenets of being able to do counterinsurgency operations. And so, in a, in a, sta in, in a way... Um, I would have expected some sort of comment uh, from him about those things. And what would the military commanders have made of that, though, to send people who had that lack of cultural awareness at the time? Well, the whole of the army is a, um, a can-do organisation. and given That was one of the problems that was highlighted in the report, isn't it? It is a problem and also a virtue. I mean, if they're given a set of things, the last thing the military person's going to say is, is burst into tears and say, I'm not going. They will get on and try and make the best of it. But that's where the, the military high command bear responsibility for much, making sure that they had these tools in the first place. It's just, just when you say, you know, who was missing, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but, Mike, you probably answer this better. Uh, I was surprised that, the committee themselves, although very good, didn't have people who could explain the answers they were getting. Well, they did. Well, I mean, well, Ro they, so Roger Wheeler was Roger military Wheeler. advisor to the committee. Yes, but and I, d I, just, yeah. I just got the impression that, the, yeah. the, that it wasn't widespread enough. Hmm. I mean, really widespread enough. A lot of those answers, uh, and I go back to, uh, to Patey, uh, in particular, a lot of the answers, and this comes and covers up what you're saying, Christopher, about the sort of lack of the cultural understanding, the languages, etc., which Beatty uh, highlighted and said we didn't know, a uh, majority of people involved in this didn't know where we're going in terms of what it was like, what, what was the background, what was the background, but even between the, uh, Shia and Sunni. They didn't at that stage. A lot of people in high command did not understand it. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, I would have expected them to recall people recall witnesses and say, look, explain this, and they didn't, and that gave me an impression, therefore they weren't, the answers that were being given weren't being explained sufficiently. Christopher Elliott. Well, I take a different view about that, and I mean, we can part as friends over it, but, <laughs> but, the, but I mean, people have said that they should have had a, um, a, a lawyer there to doing, you know, being inquisitorial and that sort of thing. I think Chiltot's much more subtle than that, actually, and I think he's laid out all the evidence and it's left it to individuals to come to their But conclusion. they did recall people. Because oh, yes, indeed. Got... But, I mean, I think that he decided that he would try and uh, put all the evidence together, and he succeeded in doing that, and that the cross-examination, which would have been one way of doing it, uh, wasn't the way he chose to do it. And I think he's, he's produced an answer which gives all the answers if you look for it. This is BFBS. Sit, rep.
Well, don't forget you can download this programme as a podcast. Search for BFBS SITREP and subscribe so you never miss an ep- episode. Just to remind you, I'm joined today by Professor Michael Clark, the former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, Major General Christopher Elliott, author of High Command British Military Leadership in Iraq and Afghanistan Wars, and as usual by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. And we're talking, of course, about the Chilcot Report. So... What are the main conclusions? Let's look first at the special relationship with the US, a bit too special at that time, according to Sir John Chilcott. There are many lessons set out in the report. Some are about the management of relations with allies, especially the US. Mr Blair overestimated his ability to influence US decisions on Iraq. The UK's relationship with the US has proved strong enough over time to bear the weight of honest disagreement. It does not require unconditional support where our interests or judgments differ. Michael Clark, how much does Tony Blair's relationship with George W. Bush matter in all of this? Well, it matters hugely because um, Blair was very shocked by 9-11, at least as shocked as anybody else in America. And I think, as the uh, Chilcott makes clear, that changed the calculus of risk um, within the Joint Intelligence Committee. They said, OK, if, if terrorism is now on this basis, how long before people like Saddam Hussein start to consort with terrorists to give them weapons? Now, there's no evidence that Saddam did that, but there was a fear that he, that, that would be the next stage. And Tony Blair says, immediately after 9-11, we are shoulder to shoulder. That's the phrase he uses. We are shoulder to shoulder with the United States. And as early as the 3rd of December, 2001, 3rd of December, um, he is saying that military action may be necessary, may be necessary. But the thing was that Tony Blair, I mean, his sin is one of pride because he thought that he could make Bush's policy work. Bush couldn't make it work. But Blair thought he could make Bush's policy work by assembling a big diplomatic caravan behind the threat to deal with Saddam. And that diplomatic caravan might be able to achieve the objective without war, but if it couldn't achieve it, then Tony Blair would be with Bush if it came to war. That was the position he took. And the problem was he put himself on rails and he ran out of options. Tony Blair ran out of options, so he was then committed to an American-led war before, as Chilcott says, all of the diplomatic circumstances, all the diplomatic avenues had really been ex- uh, been explored. And that was the problem, that Blair was determined to make Bush's policy work, which mm. otherwise was too crude to, to be credible. How much, Christopher Lee, do you think that trip to Crawford in Texas uh, changed Tony Blair's perception of how he might be able to influence George Bush? I think Chilcott was right when he, when he says, I mean, the phrases I think he used were um, that Tony Blair overestimated his ability to influence Bush and, and was foreign there a policy. Hit? But there was something else that, that was going on at that time. Um, Tony Blair's personality had almost uh, got to the point, this is an exaggeration, but got to the point where, you know, in Downing Street, it is small-time politics compared with what was going on. He was very much in the United States. I mean, when I saw him in the United States, you got the impression that he was walking the American way. Um, saw him at Crawford, or the shots at Crawford, uh, on, with, with George Bush in his, in his sort of flying jacket, jacket mm-hmm. etc. Et and, and Blair looking 
sort of uncomfortable, not quite knowing how to react into this. But, you know, he'd been given eight people to look after his personal protection. He'd been part of this presidential power thing, the White House thing. And I don't think it made major decisions influenced by that, but it was there in the personality. When it comes back, the people in the United Kingdom look and say, where have you been? Yeah. The, the other thing, Christopher, about this is that Blair, again, it comes out in these Chilcot documents and these 29 letters between Blair and Bush, which are tremendous for historians to look at now as opposed mm-hmm. to in 50 years' time or maybe even never. And what's clear from that is that Blair saw this as, as the, the beginning of remaking the whole of the Middle East. This was much more than about Iraq. Mm-hmm. They had to deal with Iraq, but dealing with Iraq would be the step to remaking the Middle East in a more Western democratic And he's, still, he's still talking about still talking it about even it. now. This, you know, Blair was quite messianic. Because, remember, he'd been very successful and lucky in the first five years of his prime ministership. And then suddenly after 9-11, he becomes unsuccessful and unlucky. But he was trusting his luck and he was going to actually make a big impact on world affairs using Iraq as the first Mm. big step. Ian Robertson, who was a desk officer in the State Department, said on the second visit when Blair came back to the United States, he said almost when he landed and got off the plane, he started to walk differently. (laughs) You can tell a lot yeah, about like, a person no, from their walk, well, you know. Well, I know with my feet as well. No, but he said he, he, he fitted in. He fitted mm. in. He knew our language. He knew our senses. Uh, and he was, part of, he, was on the, he was on the team. And that, he said, we thought was very important. Ronsfeld and, and other people didn't think it was at all important. Christopher Elliott, um, Chilcott also found that there was no collective ministerial decision... Um, these things should be debated and challenged, shouldn't they, especially by military top brass? Well, there's two questions there, is whether they have the chance to debate mm. things, and perhaps they, that wasn't as, as alert as it. But, I mean, to set this record straight, Admiral Mike Boyce did challenge uh, the Prime Minister over the legality of the war, and that may be why he didn't continue his thing. General Walker is reported by Alistair Campbell as offering to resign over the question of funding, um, and Air Chief Marshal Stirrup... Uh, found himself, when he was the Chief of Defence Staff, actually running the war because of the disinterest from Number 10 um, in, in that. But, having said that, to their defence, I do think that the, um, the institution of the CDS is too willing to support the Prime Minister and that the... So the Chief of the Defence Staff is too willing to do what he's told? Uh, no, uh, to support the Prime Minister, which is slightly different. And he has the responsibility, uh, he has to do what he's told. There's no question about that, because there's a hierarchy between the politician and the military. But uh, as this um, uh, politician is coming to the decision to go to war or not, it is absolutely incumbent on the the chief of defence staff to say, hey, do you know this may last more than one um, parliamentary term? Do you know that it's going to cost a great deal of money? Do you know that there are going to be casualties? Do you know that you're going to kill civilians? Have you made the calculus as whether this is worthwhile? And this is exactly what um, David Richards tried to do over Libya and failed because he said... He was overruled by the Prime Minister. He was overruled because he said three times, uh, Prime Minister, you've got uh, a tactical operation here to, um, to, uh, to decapitate Gaddafi... Uh, that uh, what, what more are you going to do? Where is your strategy? And he was rather derided for using a military word here, but he went back two further occasions and said, we're doing a tactical operation here, which we can do. We need a strategy. We need a strategy. We need a strategy. And eventually he got that rather sort of poisonous note from Number 10 saying, uh, the Prime Minister would be grateful if, if you did the fighting, he'll do the talking. Yes, mm-hmm. we all so, remember that quote. So the, as the CDS, he then at that stage fell into line. 
And uh, I think that was unfortunate at that stage. So I don't criticise him for what, what you seem to be saying, though, is that things are not really changing in the relationship between the Chief of Defence Staff and the Prime Minister. Well, I look at America, where the, um, the chiefs in America have a, a, a sort of constitutional accountability. They have to go before Congress. One of the problems we have is there's a complete opaqueness in Whitehall. We never see the orders they've been given. We never see the instructions... And we don't, uh, and they're not hauled before the um, the committees to explain what they're doing. Of course, the House of Commons Defence Committee interviews them, but I mean the Ministry of Defence has got a, a long history of stonewalling that. Hmm. And I think that they should be given some sort of constitutional remit that they that they have to explain what they're doing. That would give them the strength. I mean, everybody says they should resign if they don't agree. I mean, that's a stupid solution because um, that doesn't get you anywhere. What you have to do is to have the authority to say, well, I don't agree with that. Mm. So what happens now? Will this report be the workshop manual of how to go to war successfully or will it simply grow dusty on a (laughs) library shelf? Uh, Michael Clark, what should be done with it? Well, it will be uh, the, the source for a great many analyses for years to come. So I think it won't go dusty on the shelf or it won't sort of stay unclicked on our, on our files, on our computers. It, people will delve into it all the time. And a bit like the Bible, of which it's three times longer, it, there will be something in there for I'm everyone. I'm glad you didn't make the analogy with war and peace. Thank you. <laughs> but, the, but everyone who wants to make a point will find something in there to support it. Mm, Christopher Elliott, should this be taught at the staff colleges? Well, of course it will be, I mean, because we've got intelligent people at the Staff College. But I think that the, the armed services have been through an extremely scarring experience, and that scarring has produced its catharsis anyway. Um, I think they're very alert. I speak to them quite frequently, and they're very, very alert to this problem. And the hope is that actually some good will come out of this, because they will collectively not have this groupthink that seems to have achieved. Christopher Lee, what do you think the effect of this report will be? Um, Will it unlock the kind of paralysis we've seen about intervening or not? No, I think... I mean, some of the things have started. Uh, For example, um, one of the problems with uh, the um, SIS, uh, MI6, was their their ability to check and double-check intelligence that was coming in to confirm intelligence or dismiss it or whatever. Now, that has considerably changed already, but that, uh, uh, and that in itself was the result of a certain amount of restructuring anyway. Mm. What, what do you think will happen to a swift military response if those in government and the services have to jump through all those hoops and tick all those boxes? Well, Chilcott will now tell you how you... If you, if, you, if you saw a situation where you might be going to war, uh, you could go through a whole ten... A, a, a I was ten actually just, I was just checking going to come on to that and, and yeah, throw but it you, around no, the table. On. But you, you can actually say, this will tell you how to go to war, what you should do when you get there, and how you should clear up, hopefully, when you finish the war. But um, if something... Uh, you get an international crisis, which means international uh, intervention... You don't go back to Chilcot and say, now, what are we going to do about this? You will take decisions based upon the information before you, which in theory is what Tony Blair's administration did. I think that will be far clearer in future. Um, Don't forget, we know far more now. We've got different sorts of intelligence gathering and information of our own. If I could just throw this open to everybody to have a little go, uh, what what kind of questions should the Prime Minister be asking himself before considering an intervention that we saw, the likes of Iraq? 
Well, w- w- one is, uh, is you know, w- what intelligence am I getting? And I'm not going to make policy decisions on the basis of intelligence. You should never do that. Intelligence should be there to back up policy decisions made for other reasons. And also, I think a prime minister after this should say, um, let me allow for the conspiracy of optimism that the military tend to have. Let me allow for the can-do attitude and think more broadly. The pro- one of Blair's problems is that he wasn't very historically grounded. He's not very good at history. And he wasn't very militarily grounded. He didn't really understand the military. He wasn't terribly interested in how the military went about its job. Chris Elliott. Uh, what does success look like? I mean, people talk about end states and all that The catastrophic success <laughs> that we saw in the shock and awe. Yeah. No, I mean, what does strategic success look like, not tactical success? Uh, what are you going to do if things go wrong? Are you going to stick with this or are you going to uh, leave us to it? Mm, Chris Lee. You, you, you start with the basics, don't you? You look at the capability of that which causes you anxiety... What you probably don't know is what that person's going to in, intends to do with that capability, and that is the conundrum I think faces all commanders and prime ministers. Michael Clark, um, what do you think um, the effect of the Chilcot report will be long term? Long term, I think this sort of cathartic process of having this report and all that it represents, like, like Christopher said, you, you can't have a huge checklist that you're going to tick off 20 items before you make a decision, but it will inform the instincts of politicians. And sometimes you need this great catharsis in order that instincts, things that will be followed very quickly, will actually be better thought through, just instinctively thought through. I think that would be the, the long-term effect of it. We don't, we don't want to have to do this again. That's the feeling. How long do you think it's going to take you to finish reading the book, everybody? Uh, the, the report, I should say. <laughs> oh, it depends how long I'm, I can w- read my computer in the evenings. I'm not reading the hard copy, so I do it in, bi- in bursts. Well, that's uh, all we have time for, I'm afraid. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark, Major General Christopher Elliott and Christopher Lee. Do join us again this time next week when we'll be looking at what happened at NATO's Warsaw Summit. Goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Lessons will be learned. The government's promised.